does a person get started as a researcher, a writer, or a lecturer in food? We talked to Sharon Hudgens to hear her unique path to a second career in food. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Sharon Hudgens. She's a former college professor, food journalist, author, lecturer, and former editor of Chili Pepper Magazine. Welcome, Sharon. Hello, Liz. It's good to meet you at last. Thank you for inviting me. So I am really curious. You've had a varied career, which is kind of fun, but it asks all kinds of questions. So I want to ask you the first question is, how did you develop an interest in food in your life? Okay, well, it it starts with not being very interested in food. (laughs) Okay. Yes, my, my mother was a good cook. We always liked to eat in our family. And fairly adventuresome cooks, but I didn't learn how to cook, except for maybe baking was the only thing that interested me. I was not interested in food as we're all interested in food these days. It's really a subject that a lot of people like, but I lived in a small Texas town. I refused to take home economics courses in junior high or high school. I didn't even have to cook for myself until my senior year of college. And in college, I was majoring in Russian and East European studies. And my thir- my fourth year of college, I was living in an apartment for the first time and had to cook. And I got interested in Russian foods because I was studying in Russian studies at school. So really, it was, you know, the first cookbook I had was a Russian cookbook. And I just, I, I went from there being really interested in food, went on to graduate school in a totally different field in political science and strategic studies. And as a kind of a respite from all of those graduate studies, I really enjoyed cooking at home. So that's how I got interested in it and went on from there. Well, then how your your teaching then, what was your teaching in all of those years of college teaching? Ah, well, I worked for 20 years for the University of Maryland, and 18 years of those were with the University of Maryland's overseas programs in Europe and Asia. So I lived in Germany, Spain, Greece, Japan, Korea, and finally in Siberia. And during those times, traveling around, you know, teaching with the university, we might live two months in one country and then be assigned to move to another country for two months. We were we were gypsies for a long time. I say we because my husband was doing this too. And we loved living overseas. My husband's a good cook, He and he's really interested in food. So all of our travels when we had vacations at Christmas and Easter and three months in the summer were to travel in all these different countries of Europe, eating our way around those countries. And so that's how through my university, my job as a university professor, where I was actually by then teaching film and mass, mass communications, film studies was, was my second master's degree was in that field. 
So I was teaching film classes and then going around and eating my way around Europe and eating my way around Asia. And that gave me the background then for becoming a professional food writer, which started in 1983 with the Stars and Stripes newspaper, the U.S. military newspaper in, in Europe. So what did you write about in that Stars and Stripes? Anything I wanted to. to. <laughs> you had a column? You had a column. I had a column, yes. And it was it was a wonderful job. Now, mind you, I was not trained in journalism. I had never been a journalist. I'd never published a newspaper article. But all this time that I was eating my way around Europe, I was reading Gourmet Magazine, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, thinking, I'm going to the same places that they're writing about in these magazines. I could write this, too. So the we were teaching the University of Maryland's programs are primarily at US military bases overseas. And so we were we were teaching in Germany at a military base. I was very familiar with the Stars and Stripes newspaper, which is the newspaper of the for the military around the world actually. There's a European division of it, Asian division, US, etc. And so I wrote to the newspaper. I had no contacts there whatsoever. I wrote to the newspaper and I said, you don't have any food stories in your newspaper. You need a food columnist. I'm the person to do it. And here's three sample articles. Just drop that in the mail because we did everything by mail back then. And two weeks later, I got a letter in the mail saying you're hired. So oh, wow. isn't that amazing? It just started that way with no background, you know, officially on my resume. That my resume was really different from anything you would think becoming a food writer. In fact, one of the things I like to say is that I'm probably the only cookbook author in America who has also written a master's thesis on anti-ballistic missile systems. <laughs> <laughs> because I, my field was strategic studies before I became a film person. So all of that led to working for the Stars and Stripes. My Columns started out as 500 words every Thursday in the newspaper. It soon grew to 1,000 words, then 2,000 words, which meant that it covered two full pages, the centerfold of the newspaper. They had a, a, a features magazine every Thursday, and it was the centerfold of that one. And it was a dream job for a journalist because I could choose whatever topic I wanted to write about. I was collecting cookbooks, doing research tested, developed and tested all the recipes that were in there. I didn't take recipes from other sources. And I, I really made it a point to write about foods that I had actually eaten in their home countries, eaten on their home soil. So I would know what they were really supposed to taste like. And that's still a principle for me today. Yes, I, I'm a total believer in that, too. We, of course, here at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum have a research center and we collect books and journals and ephemera, all sorts of things, menus. And one of the things that people always question is, why is it that you have books in foreign languages? And so we might have a book in Polish that deals with Polish food, or we have a wonderful old book that's in Japanese and English from occupied Japan, explaining American culture to the Japanese so that they could work with all of the Americans who wound up in Japan uh, mm -hmm. during that period. And 
we always say that you need cookbooks from the written by people in the actual place, not Americans or English speakers who have gone there and written the book because they're going to bring a different perspective. Now, you might really benefit from having both, but you can't leave out the natives who have written their own books about their own food. I completely agree with you. And your description of the research library that you have at the Southern Food and Beverages Museum is indeed sounds like my library at home, <laughs> my personal <laughs> library. I've got at least 2,000 cookbooks last time I checked, and they were in 14 different languages. I'm not saying I can read 14 languages. I cannot read the one I have that's totally in Chinese, but I have books like you're talking about that are they're, they're written by the people who, who live in those countries themselves. And so I've got uh, a large collection of, of books in Spanish because I my first cookbook was about the regional cuisines of Spain. I've got books from all the former Warsaw Pact countries, every country of Eastern Europe. Uh -huh. And because of my, my university background, I can read those. So I can do research in those. And I and French and Italian and, and things like that, too. Mm -hmm. So I think it makes a big, big difference. And it's, it's somebody wants to ask me about, well, how do you know, how do you get the recipes that you publish? You just take them out of somebody else's cookbook and publish them. And I go, no, 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 that's 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 not how it works. And one of the examples I like to give was for an Alsatian cake. It's a yeast raised cake called Kugelhopf. And I I researched 38 recipes for Kugelhoff that were in French and German and the Alsatian dialect, all those in those languages. And I, you know, back before before we had computers, I made a spreadsheet on yellow legal pads uh -huh. and, you know, all the different ingredients, comparing recipes, all the different techniques. And then I would develop my own recipe from that and then test it. And if it didn't taste if it didn't taste like the best I had eaten, the best example of that food I'd eaten, then I would keep testing it until I got to where it 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 fit with my food memory of what it was like to eat that food on its home soil. And that's why I think my recipes are really more authentic than than ones where you just kind of you know, you go and eat once in a country, if even that, and, and you know, write up a recipe and say, this is what the food is like. I, I, I don't buy that. <laughs> right. I, I do think sometimes you can get pretty close if you eat with an immigrant who's living in the United States and they're That's able a good to, point. But, yeah. but that's, even that is probably still not exactly right because the cuts of meat, the vegetables not may not be the same. Mm -hmm. My, my, grandparents were immigrants from from Sicily and their backyard was full of all the vegetables that they couldn't find in the market uh, <laughs> nowadays I think you can find all those things but you mm -hmm. couldn't find a rabi you couldn't find some of the radicchios and things like that that they wanted and so they grew them in the backyard mm -hmm. uh, and so that I know that immigrants, can can find ways to get the vegetables they want, even if they're not easily available where they're living in the United States. Isn't it wonderful, though, how much the, put this in quote, air quotes, food scene has changed in America during our lifetimes? Because back in the 70s, you couldn't find a lot of things like that in the markets. And now there's such a variety. 
I mean, where we live, they're just, you know, there's, you don't just go to an Asian grocery. You can go to which kind of Asian grocery you want to go to out of <laughs> all the many different countries of Asia. And that was just not possible back even in the 1980s, I remember, you know, it was just beginning to change. So I think we're really fortunate with immigration into this country has brought so much, such a wider variety of foods available to us, both, you know, as ingredients and also in restaurants. I mean, remember when, when it, it was only Tex-Mex restaurants or California Mex restaurants, and now you get Mexican restaurants from the different regions of Mexico. And, yes. you know, that's, that's delightful, I think. Oh, yes. We have a number of Peruvian restaurants here in New Orleans, which are just fabulous. I'm a big fan of Peruvian food. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really, it is really nice that, that that's possible. So, okay. So tell me how you, how did you go from the Stars and Stripes to other, other journalism in, in food? Okay, two ways. One is that a German publisher saw a book review. I did a cookbook review in Stars and Stripes. Somebody sent it to him. It was a book he published half in German, German and English on facing pages. Uh -huh. And he contacted me and hired me as a freelance cookbook editor for his other dual language books. So that kind of, you know, I got to know this publisher. And then he was developing with a a very famous photo food photographer in Germany, a cookbook about the regional cuisines of Spain, and they needed someone to write the text for it. So I spent over a year doing that. I've traveled to all 47 provinces on the Spanish mainland. I have eaten my way around Spain, lived in Spain for several months, and, and did a lot of research on Spanish foods. And that cookbook came out in 1991. It was my first cookbook. It was translated into German immediately, chapter by chapter, as I wrote it. And it won a major prize in, in Germany, a literary award, actually, like a James Beard Award or IACP Award here in the States. Mm -hmm. And so then that gave me the credential as a, as a cookbook author. And at the same time, my father, who was living in Fort Worth, Texas, sent me a copy of Chili Pepper magazine, which I'd never heard of. He sent it to Germany, where I was living. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. You know, there are spicy foods I could write about in, in Europe. I mean, certainly there are some, you don't think of Spanish food isn't super spicy, but they do grow a lot of peppers and use them there. Mm -hmm. And even in Czechoslovakia, I had eaten some really interesting spicy foods, and of course, Hungary. So I queried the editor of Chili Pepper, and I became their European correspondent and published a lot of articles about European foods that, that have peppers as part of their, a major part of their cuisine. And so, you know, it just kind of spiraled that way. The, the, the Newsweek bureau chief in Munich told me to self-syndicate all my articles. I'd been writing for Stars and Stripes because I had kept the rights to them after the newspaper had them. That was really, really good advice to get the newspaper to give me the rights to them. Uh -huh. And I, I sent them back to the States and they were published all over the United States in different newspapers from East and West Coast, Dallas and Fort Worth, Midwest. And so, you know, 
so I was overseas, but I was building up kind of a presence here in the U.S. And so that's that's how that you know turned out. I mean, I was I was really happy that all these things came came together. And then in 1993, when we were we were living in Germany, I say we because my husband and I were both professors together. The University of Maryland sent us to start up their new program in Siberia and the Russian Far East. And that was really something because the, the, the Soviet Union had just collapsed 18 months earlier. Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting period of transition in Russian history. And since my background was in Russian studies, it was fascinating for me to, to live there and to see what was going on. And, and I was one of the first American women to live and work in Siberia at that time. And so I thought, well, this would be a good subject for a book. And I wrote a book called The Other Side of Russia, A Slice of Life in Siberia and the Russian Far East. And it was a, a memoir of living there, of traveling in, throughout si different cities in Siberia, taking the Trans-Siberian Railroad as our commuter train while we worked out there. And there were a lot of food stories in that, in that book. It wasn't a cookbook, but it, there were a lot of food stories. And then several years later, I wrote a cookbook based on the stories, but with the recipes that go with them and updating it to see, to say how things have changed in Russia since then. Back, I mean, of course, when we could go to Russia before the Ukraine's war started. Well, so did you find that, well, were you there in Soviet Russia also or only after the fall? of Only after the fall, but I had been to the East Bloc countries that, that were, you know, part of the, the Soviet sphere of influence. I had been there during the communist era in, in the 80s and 90s, and like Czechoslovakia and Hungary and places like that, and Yugoslavia, which was a little bit different. But I had been to those that were in the mainly Warsaw Pact countries. So I'd seen what kind of the Soviet life was like in those countries. But then I had never actually been to Russia, so I was thrilled to get to go. Mm -hmm. And I think what surprises people most is that we ate really well when we were living there. We shopped in the markets every day, the, the farmer's markets that were opening up. Cooking was, was a big focus of ours out there. I mean, you, you really had to shop for your food almost every day, and you had to stockpile food against shortages mm -hmm. and, and learn to live much like my parents described, you know, when they were growing up in the 1930s, that it was, you know, during the depression, it was really similar to that, but we considered it an adventure and we ate really, we ate really well. And then I didn't get back to Russia until 2006. I became a National Geographic expert on their Trans-Siberian Railroad tours, giving lectures on the 18-day mm -hmm. tours all the way 6,000 miles across Russia by train. And I got to see how much the food scene had changed in Russia since I had been there in the 1990s. The 1990s were a really different, difficult time. Economists tell us now that it was a, twice as bad as the Great Depression in the U.S. So you know, even Russians who find out I lived there in 1993 to 95 go, oh my goodness, that was terrible. You know? <laughs> and, and things had changed a lot by the 2000s. And so that's what I wrote about in my, my second book about Russia, which is the cookbook, which is called T-Bone Wax and Caviar Snacks, 
cooking with two Texans in Siberia and the Russian Far East. Well, I certainly have not spent as much time in Russia as you have. I just have been there once. I went with a, a State Department event. They were sending, the State Department was sending bands and, and little groups over for the Moscow Jazz Festival. And they wanted to have people making New Orleans food in between the jazz and blues people because there was a jazz and blues stage. Uh-huh. And so I went over doing that. And it was it was really interesting to me to to go to the various markets. They assigned us a a caterer that was catering all of the this stage um and and selling food to the people who are out in the middle of this big, huge field, you know, to to be at the jazz fest. and And so we went to all the commercial markets and got crawfish and just all kinds of things that we needed in order to do what we were doing. And that was really very interesting because the people, it was very empty when we went um, in terms of shoppers. There was a lot of stuff there, but we were there at a time of day, I guess, that it was not usual for people to be there. And so they were, the, the, the vendors were hearing us speak English and they wanted to know where we were from. And we said we were from the United States. And they started to pull us. I mean, nobody spoke English. <laughs> they were pulling us over to their their stall so that we could taste their food. <laughs> this, this one man pulled me over. He had this huge, huge mound of pomegranates. And he squeezed the pomegranates and gave me this little glass of pomegranate juice. Oh. It was just lovely. And there was, a, what do you call that fermented bread drink? Kvetch. Kvass. Yes. So I had to drink a whole bunch of that. <laughs> and I and you know, with people opening their jars of pickles and pickled tomatoes and pickled whatever they had. I mean, we were just like inundated. We had to taste everything. There and so that part of it was really, really lovely. But what I found really strange is that, for example, I went to a caviar bar, just, you know, on my own, just to see it. It wasn't part of the the little itinerary that the State Department had put together. And I was talking to people, and they were talking about how difficult it is to find anybody, because during the Soviet Union period, all of these things were not available to the regular people. I mean, I'm sure that the Soviet leaders and whatever could still have caviar. I don't mean to say that that was gone, but there weren't enough people who knew how to salt it and and grade it and do all of that sort of thing. And they didn't know enough about the lore and the, the people who were in these bars didn't know how to talk to you about it. I mean, they spoke perfect English. So it wasn't anything that was a language issue. They just didn't know. And I'm thinking, I know more just from simple reading about the history of caviar and all that than you people do and you're trying to sell it to me, you know? I and and then I, I asked the the caterer that I was telling you about, he said, Where can I take you? What is it that you want to see? And I said, I want to go to a tea house that still uses samovars and have a tea. And he says to me, What's a samovar? Oh, that's amazing. And, 
And so, and he was probably 30. I, I would say he was 30 years old. So I told him what a samovar was. And he said, I've never heard of that. That's strange. <laughs> and so he said, I will try and find a, a tea house like that. So he found some old tea house. Everybody in there had to be 115 years old. <laughs> and so the man brings the samovar to the table on this little cart. And, you know, we get all these little roller kind of things. And so my, my sort of, I started to think of him as my guide, even though I was telling him what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, he, he said that I was interested in how the samovar worked because I was. So the man brought out a little stool for me to stand on so he could take the top off the samovar so I could see inside of it. And it was still, it were, there were actual coals inside of wow. it. Uh -huh. And so he had really old samovars. This was not an electric samovar. Yeah. And I mean, that part of it was just really fascinating because he was no no doubt himself 150 years old. And, and then all of the tea that they served was mixed with black tea and wild thyme. And it was half and half. And yeah. the wild thyme they had picked in Russia but they they served it. And so then I went to the market and bought that tea because mm -hmm. he gave me the name of it and everything. And so I brought it home because I'd never had that before. And it was really very, very interesting. Anyway, I thought this is really awful that all of these things have been lost. All you know, this 30-year-old, he thought it was quaint and he thanked me for introducing to it to him. But it wasn't like he's thinking, oh, we have to protect this. No. What year was that that you visited? 2000 and, oh, I would say it was probably 2013 or 12, something like that. Oh, really? That yes. recently? Yes. Oh, yeah. oh, how interesting. I'm really surprised about that because one of the things, and I wrote about this in my, in my cookbook, was that when we got there in 1993, we we met a lot of good cooks in Russia, good home cooks. And, you know, we gave dinner parties and they invited us to their dinner parties. We just ate so well. But when we would cook foreign foods, like I gave a Spanish dinner party for Easter and I made gazpacho as the first course and they all wanted the recipe. They were just enamored of this gazpacho and, and they, they couldn't imagine it. And, and I was going, but you've got all the ingredients here in Russia, except for the olive oil, which we, by then was being imported into Russia in, in 1993 and 94. And it was because they had not had cookbooks from other places. Uh -huh. They had not been able to travel to other countries. So they didn't have the experience of all these foods that we do. And mm -hmm. unless you lived in some place like Moscow, you really weren't around a lot of immigrants from other countries in mm -hmm. Russia. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have the experience of the food, even though they had the ingredients. And as soon as I gave them the recipe, they were thrilled to make that dish too. Now, mm -hmm. the change for me is when I went back to Russia, I left in 1995. And when I went back in, in 2006, there were cookbooks from all over the world there now. There was a Betty Crocker cookbook I found in the city of Kazan. There were big cookbook sections in the big bookstores when before there would be just a, a shelf of cookbooks back in the, the 
early post-Soviet era, and I'm sure the Soviet era, of course, and they were all about Russia, you know, the, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so, I mean, I mean, I have a large collection of, of Russian cookbooks in Russia that span the time period from 1955 up till 2018, the last time I was there, and it's remarkable, the change of that, so I think, I'm surprised that, I think maybe this man who was your guide was, you know, just not very interested in food because you would have thought he would have, have known those things. And of course, there are so many restaurants in Russia now of mm -hmm. many different kinds, which there were not before. So it's a, it's been a huge change. I don't know how it's changed now under sanctions and everything. I don't have any sense of that since I was last there. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting how people did not know simply if you live in a country where you can't travel easily to other countries back in the Soviet times, you're not going to be able to, and you don't have cookbooks from those countries. You don't really know those foods exist. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And we did Turkey mole. We did a, 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 a Turkey mole and refried beans and Spanish rice and all that for our, our friends who were good cooks. And that was the only dinner party we gave in Russia. That was a flop. It was a complete flop. They could not imagine what is in this meat sauce. It has, it has nuts in it. It has chocolate. You put chocolate in the meat sauce. It was like, oh no, and nobody would eat it. We ended up just scraping it all off into the trash after the dinner. Oh, oh. that's too bad. Yeah. But usually they were pretty adventuresome eaters. So, you know, we, you know, we, I, I have to say we really ate well and that surprises everybody, you know, that, mm -hmm. that we ate, that we ate well in Russia, but you must have had quite an experience cooking cooking New Orleans food for them. How did they react to New Orleans? Food? Oh, they loved it. They absolutely wow. loved it. And they, they just kept coming back that I'd see people get back in line, you know, <laughs> buy it again. <laughs> did you cook? What did you cook for them? Um, we cooked jambalaya and we cooked a, a chicken and sausage gumbo. Mm-hmm. So we had we had looked at doing a seafood gumbo, but we'd been in correspondence with the caterer ahead of time so that they would know what we would need. And we realized that the things like oysters and whatever were just too expensive to, mm -hmm. to make it possible. So that's why we picked chicken and sausage. Mm -hmm. oh, I think that's really good to introduce them to that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, they had rice. And so that that made it that made it work. Uh -huh. So I want to know now, what, what is it that you're doing today? What's, what's on your <laughs> agenda for, for your future? Well, I'm working on two book projects right now. One of them is I got the rights to my award-winning Spanish cookbook that was published back in 1991. Mm -hmm. And I'm working on, on, on trying to find a publisher for that one now because it's about Spanish regional cuisines on the cusp of when Spain changed to modern food. So it's the old kind of cooking like grandma did. I, I was talking with a woman in Spain just a few years ago and she said, oh, you know the old Spain when we were talking about foods instead of the new Spain. So, and I've got the photographs for that and all. So I'm, I'm looking for a publisher for that one because it is really a food history, you know, kind of a, a snapshot of food history, a time, a certain time in Spain, mm -hmm. unlike what the food is, is now. Although certainly there are many traditional dishes that people still eat, but this is the old traditional foods. Yeah. And then I'm working on another, on a memoir of living in a 
remote place in the Scottish Highlands in a two-room stone cottage many, many years ago with my husband and how that area around Scotland has changed and the foods that we that we ate or couldn't really eat back then. I mean, there I didn't have much. We we cooked, we had to cook everything, but there were not many supplies available. And how foods have changed up in that area now too. Wow. So two two yeah. book projects is enough to keep me busy. <laughs> I bet I bet it is. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you very much for being with us today. This has been a lot of fun. A great conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me, Liz. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink-related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.